week when I uh, read these assigned passages for this Sunday, it's the Genesis text that struck me or stuck out to me. And this story is the story of attention that is present in Abraham's family over Hagar and her son Ishmael. And if you remember the story, I want to point out to you, remember Hagar, who is a key figure in this story, was a slave girl to Sarah, Abraham's wife. And she is in a bad way in this story. She's lost in a wilderness. She runs out of stuff. She thinks she's going to die. She had been forced into a sexual relationship with Sarah's husband, Abraham. Uh, it was Sarah's idea um, because Sarah was barren and she thought maybe this would fix the situation. Um, so Hagar is not in control of her own body. Scary thought. She's not, she doesn't own her own sexuality. And she gets pregnant and she has this baby. Sarah was the one that had the idea and the reason she did it again is because she was barren and Hagar got pregnant. Things got worse because when she had a baby and got pregnant, when Hagar or Sarah couldn't, it, it just made Sarah look bad and it just upped the sense of tension. Uh, but then Sarah ends up getting pregnant per God's promise and she has Isaac. And after she has Isaac, there's a skirmish that breaks up between Ishmael and Isaac, the younger uh, half-brother. Uh, this skirmish breaks out, and Sarah overreacts. And she basically starts speaking harshly about Hagar, refusing to name her, just calls her that slave woman, refuses to name Ishmael, just calls him that son of the slave woman. So they're unnamed in her mind. And says, just get her Get them out of here. And so um, they're sent into this harsh wilderness with nothing but a little bit of bread and some water. Now, <laughs> I will say this, that reading a story like this from a Bible family makes some of us feel better about our dysfunctional families. This is crazy here, right? Um, Abraham complies. Hagar flees out into the wilderness. She has no wealth, no resources. Uh, to care for herself or her son. She has no protection, even though Abraham had a huge uh, grouping of men that could have protected and gone with her to make sure they got somewhere safe. She isn't given any companionship. She's just sent out into the wilderness by herself with her boy. She has no real power. She runs out of water. She knows the whole thing's going to end badly. She's assessing the situation. She says something like this to herself, we're done. It's, it's hopeless. It's over. And she puts her son underneath a bush and because she didn't want to watch him die. So that's how bleak it was for her. And she goes over about a, a shot away of a bow, goes over and sits down and starts to sob. What can she do? Nothing. Then we pick up the narrative in verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under the one of the bushes. She went off and she sat down nearby about a bow shot away and for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. And God heard the boy cry. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and he said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? He calls her by name. Another version says, what 
troubles you. Hagar. It was this text that rippled in me. This idea that anyone that would have heard this story in the ancient world would have been fascinated by the idea that God actually noticed Hagar and actually dared to say her name to give her that kind of dignity. This is a culture that didn't value the voice of women, much less a slave woman. She wasn't important, and yet God sees her, and God speaks to her. Here's the message, I think, to us as God listens to and responds to unimportant people, to outsiders, to those who have been dealt a horrible hand in the deck of cards of life, those who feel used or mistreated or ignored or thrown away. God hears those people. Or to, to those of us who feel like we're on the margins because we've been too sinful or too lazy or too weak or too flawed. Or those of us who feel like we're kind of a minute late and a dollar short, you know, in life. We just don't have connections. It doesn't seem we have enough connections like others do. We don't have the talent that others have or have a big enough personality or enough faith. And uh, honestly, after pastoring for almost 40 years now, um, I'm convinced most people, not all people, because a lot of people really think they're amazing, to themselves, but um, but most people, most people are like, they're, they feel like they're a little on the outside when it comes to matters of faith, and they sort of feel like they're wandering in a wilderness, and uh, with a little bit of water, a little bit of bread, no real direction, and sometimes feels like loss is deeply imminent. They're to this, or not enough that, to really matter. So the on a feeling level, not even necessarily cognitively, but on a feeling level, they just feel, why would God listen to me? I don't think most of us um, shy from prayer because we don't want to pray. I think most of us do because we're not sure it matters. At least us praying. Somebody else praying, oh, that's, they're more important than us. But this, this story tells us, surprise, God listens to unimportant people. God listens to people who, from all outward expression, are losers. God hears them and responds to them. God sees people no one else sees. He says, what's the matter, Hagar? I think this reflects the heart of the gospel. The whole idea of incarnation, that God who exists outside of time comes into time in the face of Christ and he takes on the very life of the human experience. He experiences the joys, the laughter, the disappointment. He experiences the rejection, the, the um, betrayal, the loss of his life. All of this he experiences as a human, God becoming human, 
Because in Christ, God sees, and God listens, and God hears, and God responds to everyone. Jesus always counted people in. Everyone belonged. One beautiful example of this is is the time where he brings healing to a leper. And if you know the context of the gospel in that first century, Jews didn't touch lepers. There were different groups that were for, they were forbidden to touch because of an uncleanness that they had. This sense that if you touch them, not only you'd be, tu- you'd be touching unclean, and by virtue of touching the unclean one, you would become unclean. And so they would not touch them. In fact, there were groups of people that when they went through, like in through a village or around anybody else, they were commanded to say, yell out, unclean! Unclean! So that people were warned that an unclean one was coming into their midst and people would walk around them. They would avoid them. Those people would remain nameless, voiceless. You don't touch them. And so here's Jesus coming up to one of these outcasts in Matthew 8. When Jesus came down from the mountainsides, large crowds followed him. So what he's about to do, he does in public. A man with leprosy came, which is bold. And he knelt down beside him. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That was a modern, I think. What he was after was physical healing. But when I really think about it, what I wonder is, maybe he was after being able to belong again. To be able to go to his family. To be able to be with friends. To be able to be touched. He said, if you're willing... You can make me clean so that I'm not having to cry unclean. So Jesus, watch, stretched out his hand and he touched the guy. He touched the man. He didn't have to do this. We know in Jesus' life and other places, he just spoke and people were healed. The fact that he touched this man and he said, I am willing, be clean and immediately he was cured of his leprosy. I guarantee you that people would have been more shocked in that moment as they were watching this. They would have been more shocked by willingness of Jesus to touch this man than they ever would have been to see him walk away cured. People didn't touch unclean, but Jesus does. He touched lepers. Why? Because everyone is clean to Jesus. Everyone belongs in his way. I used to think that God did miracles to prove his power in existence. And I would contend for it. i say, God, we need to see more of your power. People need to know that you're alive. And I, I'm not saying that's completely untrue. I think there's truth in that. But what if it's not the whole truth? What if it's not even the weightier part of the truth? What if Jesus' primary reason for healing people was so that they could belong? that the untouchables could be touched again. I've had cancer patients come up to me and 
talk to me, I visited them in the hospital, and one of the first things I do because of what I've been told is I'll touch their hand, I'll grab their hand. Because what they've told me over the years is that when they've announced to people that they've had cancer, people stop touching them. I think it's something in our DNA or something, you know, there's a kind of sense that we want to protect, you know, we don't, you know, if we get near something that looks filthy, we'll avoid it, right? And so if we get near somebody that we don't quite know what's going on, there's a kind of natural sense of protection to pull back, right? The, the same thing is true, uh, I've been told this by the elderly, that as a person gets older and more frail, oftentimes no, no one touches them anymore. That's what's so beautiful about encouraging your grandkids to hug your grandparents or great-grandparents. That's what's so beautiful about going to a, you know, to a home or something and leaning down and touching or hugging gently an older person. Because what you're saying is, you belong. You matter. I remember it's a story I've told here a number of times because I only had one life. So I have the same stories, but uh, I, I could make some up. There are preachers that do that. They're going to hell for a couple of months. It's, it's cool. But this, this guy back in the 80s, uh, when we had no idea or understanding what, what HIV and AIDS, what, what actually, we knew there was sexual things that were transmitted, but what else could it be transmitted by? We honestly thought there were reports that they thought maybe through uh, sweat or tears, you know, that kind of kissing, you know, that kind of stuff. And so there was this real intense fear that, that if you're with somebody that has AIDS, you know, it was scary. So I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. This guy was standing there. He looked really sick and frail, and he leaned over to me, and he said, could you pray for me? I grabbed his hand as I do. I leaned into him as I do with anyone, and he said, I have AIDS. And my response, uncharacteristic, I mean, just I, I actually surprised myself. I reached up on his neck and pulled his face to my face, cheek to cheek. And he started to weep. I felt the presence of God. Amazing. As much as I think I've ever felt God's breath and hand. This guy's crying. I'm, I'm feeling God's presence and thinking, well, there you go, Ed. He's crying. You're going to die. Gail is going to be really mad at you. But you know what I thought? I'd rather die loving than live protecting myself. I don't know how to explain what that is. I just think it was very Jesus-y. There's something very powerful about touching people. Touch is a beautiful thing. It's a healing thing. We, we know now from studies that are just recently, in the last 20, 30 years, about the power of touching children that are held versus kids that are not. Sick people that don't get touched versus those that put their hands on them and encouraging healthcare workers to touch sick patients more. That there's something healing about it. What if um, belonging is more to the point in God's kingdom than proof that God heals and that he's alive. What if touching is the true heart of God to everyone to make sure they know they matter and that they belong? It, it, it's, 
it isn't just the beautiful and the wealthy and the young and the talented and the highborn or wellborn that are that are among us that are supposed to belong. All of us belong. All of us are dreams of God come true. He wanted us to be here. That's why we're here. He chose for us to live. That's why we live. There's a text in the Psalms where the psalmist says, you hold us in life. The reason we're even here breathing this morning is because God has chosen to hold you in life. And so the breathing is a very gift. When you're done here, he lets go and you leave life. But he's chosen you. He knows you. He knows your name. And what touches you touches him. What is troubling you, Hagar? The early church fathers claimed that it was the dawning of evil that created separation and us willing to diminish other people, other human beings in our minds. That wasn't God's dream. It was the result of evil entering the world. St. Maximus wrote, quote, The devil, man's tempter from the beginning, had separated himself in his will from God. And it separated men from each other. Evil does that. What if the whole point of the gospel is to let people who are outsiders inside? What if the gospel destroys exclusion? Texts like this one surely imply that. Listen to it. This is Matthew 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven, and here's the parable, it's like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. This is big time honoring. And he sent out his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but people refused to come. Let me pick up the narrative in verse 9. So the king tells him, go out into the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Anyone. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding Hall was filled with guests. This is a parable of the kingdom. God invite everyone in, anyone you see. Doesn't matter if they're good, doesn't matter if they're bad, doesn't matter if they're sketchy. Invite them. Everybody's in on this deal. See, on one level, this is crazy talk. Jesus is throwing a grenade into the social structure of the ancient world. Because who you sat next to and who you ate next to was one of the few places that you could show your status and your position. It was kind of like a car that you drive or, uh, or the clothes that you wear, right? It kind of to give you a distinguishing that you're rich or that you're special. One of the ways that that was shown is how you ate and who you sat next to at those meals. The picture Jesus is painting is that this is a meal where women can sit right next to men. Right next to the poor, sitting right next to the rich. High society, right next to low. Righteous people, right next to unrighteous people. This was a scandalous picture for their day. It was both disturbing and disorienting. Because... What was actually involved, and really what ends up happening, this is this, what becomes later the scandal of the Lord's table. Because in that day, there were rules for who sat where. 
and, and who ate first. If you were the head of the house, if I was the head of the house, I would eat first, and then my most honored guest would be next to me, and he would eat next, and it would go around to less and less important people, and once they have all eaten and have finished, slaves would eat, and once slaves would eat, and then women and kids. Another room after all the men have eaten. That's the way it was, man. And so here comes Jesus to the Eucharist and the table. And the church says, we all eat together. Men with women, Jews with Greeks, rich with poor, lowborn with highborn. We're all the same. That means everyone mattered. Everyone was heard. Everyone belonged. God sees and hears all of us. Here's an interesting sidebar. Um, uh, what, what do you think of when you think about Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees, right? Um, he called, <laughs> he, they didn't get along. He called them white-walled sepulchers, which is a fancy way of calling them tombs, right, or graveyards. Uh, he called them children of the devil. That's how to win friends and influence people right there. You're a child of the devil. I would often preach years ago that the Pharisees were rejected or, or put off by Jesus because they were too legalistic about truth, that, that they were too hard-nosed about truth. But what if, what if it, that isn't really at the heart of it? What if what the heart of the deal is, it's not so much about truth, but the fact that they just rejected people over stuff at all. They just rejected people. They created an us-them thing us versus them kind of dialectic where people were made less than people because of what they did or what they believed right they didn't the pharisees didn't see people they only saw what people did or what people believed and they evaluated them on those bases right classic famous example of this is they're walking through the fields jesus and the disciples are walking through the field it's a sabbath day it's a day that's supposed to be holy you're not supposed to eat pick heads of grain and eat. That's harvesting. Naughty, right? And so here they're eating it, walking along, eating it. And, and the Pharisees come along and say, now sit here. Look, they're, they're doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath to do. And Jesus responds and says basically, guys, chill out. You're right. They're idiots. But they're so hungry. They forgot. Listen. The reason you were stupid this week is you were so hungry you forgot. The reason we sin is because we lean into things because we don't know how to righteously fulfill hungers and so we do stupid stuff. But the point is, is that Jesus isn't more freaked out about the stupid we do. He sees the pain and the longings that we have and the hungers that we have and he sees people before he sees what people do. That doesn't mean sin doesn't matter. It just means it doesn't matter most. Somehow, the Pharisees were good at cutting people off. How else can we keep our religious space pure? Like Sarah, they wanted to send people into the wilderness with no protection, with little provision. They were okay with casting people into a place where their voices and cries would not be heard but what if that's the whole point of the gospel? To let people belong even when they act 
badly or act wrong? What if we're most like Jesus when we touch the unclean one? Now you may internally protest and quote texts quote text like this. This is out of 2 Corinthians. I've heard it quoted often. I've quoted it often myself. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteous and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? It was an Old Testament uh, false god. And what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. This sounds like it's exactly against the very thing I've been talking about. And there's other texts like this. Without taking the time to exegete this text, which we probably should but can't take the time to, let me simply suggest to you that too much has been made of texts like this. And let me also suggest to you that texts like these are often used to justify screening people out who we don't agree with or who embarrass us. And that we're the ones that ultimately determine who's clean and unclean. And I don't think that's what that text is talking about. Us being God. We don't want Hagar in our midst. Now it's true that sometimes there are situations where someone needs to be stopped because he or she is causing some sort of enormous sort of strife or turmoil. But many are cast out of our midst and have been historically in the church who do not fit that category. They just, we just don't like them. We don't like what they do. And so we shuffle them off. But I think the heart of the gospel is if we're going to err, we should err on the side of letting anyone in with us. Just be sloppy agape. <laughs> Matthew 13, Jesus tells this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a guy who sowed good seed in his field. But while he was sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds in the midst of that good seed and went away. And when the weeds started growing and forming heads, these weeds, these bad weeds showed up with that wheat. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? The owner goes, Eh, an enemy did this last. The servant said to him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? Should we get rid of these? Should we get this place clean? Get rid of the ugly? Get rid of the bad? He said, No. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you might root up the wheat that's with it. Let them both grow together until harvest sometimes we're just to let things alone because it's too hard to discern what's really going on only God knows at that time I'll tell the harvesters God tells the harvesters I collect first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn Jesus is saying this is what the kingdom's like Augustine used this text to deal with a heresy called the Donatist heresy in the 4th century, when these group of leaders wanted to point to another group of leaders and say, they're not legitimate! They did wrong! And Augustine uses this text and says, you don't have the ability to discern that. They may be wrong, but you don't have the, you don't have the capacity to discern that. Leave them alone. 
Because in your desire to pull up weeds, you might pull up wheat. And let them grow together. God will discern it and sort it out. The church sided with Augustine. Late in the 5th century, Pseudo Fulgentius wrote, quote, For just as after the flood, the wicked pride of men built a high tower against the Lord, Babel. And the human race then deserved to be divided by means of a diversity of languages. So that each people speaking its own tongue was no longer understood of the others. They're divided. So the humble piety of the faithful, talking about believers, has made those diverse tongues combine in the unity of the church so that what discord had broken up charity should reunite. And the scattered members of humanity as members of one only body should be bound up together in Christ, the only head, and forged together in the fire of love and to make the unity of his holy body. What he's saying is that sin broke us up. The impulse of the kingdom is always to bring us together, even if it's not perfect, and even though we're all not perfect. The heart of evangelism welcomes all. The heart of evangelism is not to see anyone as unclean. And let me close with this rather long text. I'll read it quickly. This is Acts 10. At Caesarea, there's this guy named Cornelius. He's a centurion in what had become known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had this vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, again names him. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers, your gifts to the poor, they've come up as a memorial offering before God. God sees people. Now send men to Joppa and bring back the man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened. He sends them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were coming, approaching the city where Peter was, Peter went up to the roof to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared for him down below, he fell into this trance. And he saw in this trance heaven open, something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. And it contained all these four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, he's describing things that were forbidden that Jews should eat. He's hungry. He's being presented with stuff he is not supposed to eat if he's a follower of God, right? And so the voice tells him, Peter, get up, kill one of these things and eat it. And Peter goes, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice said to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men from from Cornelius found out where Simon's house was. They stopped at the gate. They called out, asked if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, there's these three men that are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? 
The man replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. He's still a pagan or still a, 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 not a Jew, a Greek guy. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. And the next day, they started out together. Some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives, his close friends, a bunch of people he knew. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet in reverence. Peter says, no, 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 don't do it. Stand up. I'm only a guy. Don't be doing this. Um, we worship God. And talking with him, Peter went outside and found, or inside rather, and found a large gathering of people. And watch what he says to them. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to even visit him. I have a friend, Bruce Porter, who spent several years in Israel, learned Hebrew, looks Jewish, big old beard, just has a kind of sparkle in his eye, and he's just a really neat guy. And he would travel the buses. He told me about this. About this he told me a conversation about a, he, this would happen with some degree of regularity. He was talking to a, a, a Sikh Jew, and he's he's uh, they're conversing. He's speaking in in Hebrew, which you know made the guy even more open. And they shake hands, and after they're talking a little while, it didn't take very long for them to discover that Bruce wasn't a Jew. He said, as soon as they picked up on that, he said, this would be the standard operation procedure. They had just shook the guy's hand. He'd just shaken hands. They started doing this. Because they're not even supposed to touch a Gentile. So here's Peter. This is deep. This is thousands of years old, this pushback. And he says, you guys know... We're not even supposed to associate with the Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising an objection. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Has he shown you that? A church that believes in the gospel needs to be committed to being for people. We need to stop and realize God values all people, and so must we. God listens and hears all people, and so must we. God is not an austere, stern judge who has not or no time for people. He is the one who calls from heaven and says, What is the matter, Hagar? What troubles you? 